You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. I'm one of your hosts, Britta Barrett, and today we've got another special feed drop. Please enjoy this conversation with U.S. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. It's my privilege to introduce you to U.S. Congresswoman and author Pramila Jayapal. Congresswoman Jayapal has been a champion for libraries and for KCLS, particularly supporting our programs and services for children, families, and immigrants. She represents the 7th Congressional District, which includes Shoreline, Burien, Vashon Island, and Lake Forest Park, all communities where KCLS patrons are highly supportive of their local libraries. Prior to being elected to Congress, the Congresswoman helped launch her summer reading program while serving as a Washington State Senator. She understands the importance of literacy as well as digital equity, recently advocating for libraries to ensure our patrons have full and fair access to ebooks. In addition, she worked at her campus library in college, so she understands the role of libraries for students at all levels. As you will hear in the discussion of her book, Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change, she celebrates and embodies the positive role of immigrants in the American story. At KCLS, we're committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion in our internal culture, as well as in our public programs and services. Many new Americans arriving in the Puget Sound area have participated in our citizenship classes, ESL programs, conversational English talk time, and world language story times. Our welcoming centers connect new arrivals with local ambassadors who've been through the immigration process themselves, who understand the challenges of finding support and accurate information. This fall, KCLS will host a series of author events highlighting writers of color who reflect the diversity of King County. For more information, please visit kcls.org backslash author voices. I'm so pleased that local activist, author, and former Seattle City Council member Nick Lakata has agreed to lead our discussion of Use the Power You Have. His own book, Becoming a Citizen Activist, touches on themes of discovering and harnessing personal power for positive change, and we're fortunate to have him as moderator. Thank you for both being here and sharing your own powerful experiences with us. You've had a lot of different kinds of experiences. People sometimes are reticent to have a new experience. And you said how you grow with each, you growing with each experience. So in some ways I'm saying for people who are a little afraid to get involved in politics or that, there's a fear you overcome, but you also gain from it. So I wanted to, to talk, talk about your experience and how people who are, want to get involved, how they can view it as a, an adventure. <laughs> come over here as an immigrant. And as you said, I came over when I was 16 years old by myself. It's sort of like you've got to figure out how to make it. You know, you, you there is no option to fail. My parents had very little money in their bank account. They used all of it to send me here by myself. And I knew that this was a massive sacrifice to send your kid across the ocean and know that they might never come back. And so I had to figure it out on my own. And I think that I um, started to realize that this idea that you don't have to know everything <laughs> was a survival technique. 
And it also turned out to be a great organizing strategy in later life. And my staff always used to say, you know, if you want to get Pramila to do something, just tell her it can't be done. The minute somebody says something can't be done, I've got to go figure out how to do it. And I think that some of the work in organizing is to be able to move forward without having the full game plan. You do have to have a strategy. You need to know tactics. You you know, there's a lot of different pieces to good organizing and good political change. But the main thing is you don't have to know everything. And you can admit that you don't know everything. There are many times, even in this job, when I say, that's an interesting idea. I've never really thought about that. I don't know the answer to that. Let me find out and let me get back to you. You know, I don't think we need to be superhuman as politicians. (laughs) I think actually what people want to know is that we are human and that we um, also experience many of the same things that, that other people do. And so I think my experience of just having to make it and having to learn for myself and having to wake up and figure it out without really many people telling me what to do or how to do it um, ended up being really instructive for my organizing career in later life. So take take a try at it and it doesn't have to, you don't have to be good at everything. You just need to have a, a few key things that you can contribute that you can put one foot in front of the other and the path will make itself clear. Very good advice. Um, you know, you also describe how you have success when you have some great examples, you don't have to go into them, uh, how you reach out to others who you were either unfamiliar with or who you um, didn't necessarily agree with. I mean, Republican cases, also those who crossed the aisle and got things passed, like in Washington State, the uh, Automatic Voter Registration Act. But um, you say, I have never been afraid of talking to people who disagree with me, which I think that's a big fear to overcome. So how can you give, how can you apply that advice in this divisive environment that President Trump has created? Well, I always, and maybe this comes from, again, like being thrown out. I've had many different experiences in my life before becoming a a nonprofit person and working in social justice um, and then before becoming coming to Congress. And one of the experiences was selling defibrillators in eastern Indiana and western Ohio. And I was the first woman and the first person of color in the district. You know, the guys didn't like me because they were like, what is she doing here? She's going to bring down our sales numbers. So I had to prove them right. But more importantly, I had to go into these little towns across eastern Indiana where people really were nothing like me. And I had to establish a relationship with them. And I learned that there really are a lot of things that we have in common. And um, if you can get to those places of, you know, just relating to each other as individuals and finding some of those commonalities, just one thing, I would I would go into an office and I would look around for one thing that made me feel like I was at home. And then that would become the thing I would start the conversation with. And it just helped. It doesn't fix everything. You're not going to come away agreeing on everything. And I don't think that the idea, I think we should differentiate between the idea of compromise and principled compromise. You know, if, if, uh, if sometimes people think about compromise as you both come into the middle and you just meet there. Well, if you're talking about the separation of families and you've separated thousands of families, is a compromise that to say, well, we, we'll just 
seek equity for half of those families? Of course not. So the principled compromise, I think, is an important piece. And if you can come at that discussion with a sense of both what you're trying to achieve and what the other person is trying to achieve and really see if without making it personal, there's some way to come to agreement. I think that is important and that's something that I have learned to do as progressive as my ideas are, you know, something like the Paycheck Recovery Act, I was able to get Republicans on that and moderate Democrats and conservative Democrats and progressive Democrats. So I think that um, sometimes language gets in the way, but sometimes it's just ourselves. We're like, oh, I can't possibly find anything in common um, with that person. And, and maybe I can just tell one quick anecdote that's in the book where I got to Congress and I um, had a South Asian heart health bill, which is actually going to come, it's being marked up either today or tomorrow on the floor, and it's going to hopefully go to a vote in the next couple of weeks. And it's just uh, to really invest in um, lifting up the issue of heart health for South Asians across the country. And I was looking for a Republican co-sponsor, and I happened to go into the elevator I was when I was brand new, my first term, and um, I see a guy there, and it's, uh, it's Joe Wilson, who you might remember as the person who screamed, you lied to President Obama when he was talking about the Affordable Care Act. And um, he looks at me and he says, where, we, you know, where are you from? And I said, here. <laughs> and he said, no, no, I mean, what's your heritage? And I said, I'm, I'm from India originally, born in India. And he said, oh, I love India. I love India. My father served in the army in India. And, you know, I've got a great big picture of the Taj Mahal in my office and you should come by. And, you know, I'm really close to the South Asian community. Well, guess who ended up being my Republican co-sponsor on my South Asian heart health bill? And it's going to go to the floor and hopefully pass with unanimous support. Well, uh continue on this trend a little bit because there's always a balancing act. Um, what we're talking about is reaching out not to make unprincipled compromises, but finding that hook where you can bring someone over to your side. But also sometimes the hardest people to convince um, are people who are already on your side and they don't want to go that far. And that is, as both of us have experienced, perhaps the most difficult kind of decisions we have to make. And so Given your orientation, similar to mine, which is to talk to everyone and see where you can get people who want to get involved in politics or organizing and things of that sort, what's your advice to them as far as um, how do you organize your base, but sometimes some people in the base aren't willing to, to move further and you feel like there's need to, to do something further? Um, that's, a hard, that's a hard discussion to have, but successful. So I think you have something wise to say about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is a hard discussion to have. And you you and I are both progressives. I'm the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Um, and we are, you know, one piece of the entire Democratic Party, 40 percent. I'm the lead sponsor of the Medicare for All bill. Um, I'm a huge proponent of comprehensive immigration reform, uh, generous comprehensive immigration reform. There's any number of things we could talk about that, um, you know, fight for 15. I mean, Seattle was the first major city to pass a $15 minimum wage. You and I were both on that committee together. And now it's become mainstream, but for a long time it wasn't. 
and uh, within the Democratic Party. And so I always say that being a progressive just means you're the first to the best and most just idea. So we often come up with the ideas and then we have to build the movement to actually make it a reality. Because if and I say this in the book, if politics is the art of the possible, then it's up to us as organizers, wherever we sit, whether we're in Congress or outside of Congress, to move the boundaries of what is seen as possible. But no change ever comes wholesale. Um, You know, there's almost nothing that we've gotten that has come as one giant gift wrap package that was exactly what the progressive left wanted. Everything was a fight. And there were more substantial steps taken and less substantial steps taken. And one of the things you have to do is you have to strategize about how much you can get. And it's a judgment call. And for me, the thing I look at is, is it going to harm anyone? Is the step I'm going to take going to harm anyone? Because if it's going to harm somebody, that's a whole different assessment. To push some people forward and other people back to me is not very acceptable. That's not going to be a place where I'm going to be likely to be able to compromise. But if the question is, how far can I go? And it's not all the way to the end, but what are the ways in which I can push further, change the boundaries of what's seen as possible, push as much as I can. But at some point, there is a judgment call about what you're going to get. And Joe Biden is not, for example, going to become Bernie Sanders. Um, And so how far can we get on Medicare for all type uh, proposals as we're talking with Joe Biden? And then what happens once you get to something that becomes the floor? It doesn't mean you stop pushing for what you can get, but you continue then to strategize. What are the things that happened that stopped us from being able to get even more? And how do we build our movement so that it has the strength so that we can actually get what we need. Perfect. And I, I, again, I'm going to follow up on that because in reading your book, the one thing that really screams out at me is think like an organizer. And people who get into office think, that's it, I'm in office. They, they still have to continue to not just meet the needs of the constituents, they still need to organize them and other politicians. The example you pointed out in your book was how you reorganized, I think it's the Progressive Caucus, into a nonprofit organization. Initially, I think it was just one, maybe one part-time person, 15 full-time people, six fellowships on it, you know, working in interns. Um, what is important? How were you able to do that, first of all? You know, reach out and show we have to work together. We grew the Progressive Caucus. And how can others learn why is it important to be or to have organized research? Because that's what it comes down to, getting good information and then being able to influence others. A lot of people zip over that, but you have succeeded in making it a powerhouse. Yeah, well, I think people don't really think about infrastructure. They think about somebody going in and being, you know, being able to change everything. And you can't. I mean, you couldn't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. We can't even do it with the squad and, you know, 15 or 20 people. It's like you need to have an infrastructure that deals with all of the different ways in which progressive ideas are attacked within the political system. And so when I went into Congress, um, Keith Ellison was the co-chair at the time 
time of the Progressive Caucus, along with Raul Grijalva, and he had really started to build that infrastructure. He had started to think about, all right, how do we turn the Progressive Caucus within Congress from sort of what was a social group started by Maxine Waters, Bernie Sanders, and others way back uh, in 1991, I think it was, but how do we turn that from a social group into an entity that has real power, and what does it take to have real power? And what we realized is that there were all these lobbyists outside our door. Five. I don't take any corporate PAC money. Um, you know, that's just. I, I just do not believe that we should. Ha- we should get money out of politics. Period. But there are a lot of people who do take that corporate PAC money, and there are a lot of lobbyists, like 500 lobbyists for every member of Congress, that are standing outside your door, ready to give you all this information. Well, what is our counter to that? We didn't have it. We didn't have a research entity. There was no coordination of public. Uh, you know of. Uh, progressive think tanks. There was no coordination really of the outside movement at that time, um, or very little. And so we had one staff person within the Progressive Caucus for 100 members. And I realized, okay, there are multiple places where we need infrastructure. First of all, within Congress, we needed to build the capacity of our staff within Congress. So we increased our dues. Um, This year, going into the next term, we're actually going to put more restrictions in place about what it means to be a Progressive Caucus member. That's not going to necessarily be super popular with some people, but that's something that I feel very strongly about. And um, and then, you know, so that was sort of the internal piece. We hired more staff so that we actually have a policy director, a comms director, et cetera, raise the dues, put in more restrictions. But then we also needed to build this outside entity, this 501c3, that is called the Congressional Progressive Caucus Center. And that now coordinates the organizing with labor, with community organizations, with progressive groups, with things tanks. And that has brought a whole new set of capacity. And that's the 15 staff that you mentioned. We built that from the ground up. And then we built the PAC operation for progressives, because we also know that we've got to get involved in primary elections and general elections, electing more progressive members. And we need to be able to have money and organizing capacity to put to those members. So Mondaire Jones um, was elected. He was our first independent expenditure that we ran out of the Progressive Caucus PAC. Um, And now we have Mondaire Jones, Jamal Bowman, Corey Bush, Marie Newman in Chicago. Um, We're uh, supporting Beth Doglio in Washington 10. We're supporting um, Cara Eastman in Nebraska. We have a whole slate of progressive candidates that we are trying to help win because the more members we get in that are running on progressive ideas and really willing to stand up for those progressive ideas, the more powerful we will be. So three different pieces of infrastructure that we had to build. And uh, I'm really proud to have done that as as co-chair with Mark Pocan, my current co-chair. Um, and we're going to continue We've got more to do. It's we're not done. Takes a while to build this infrastructure. But without that, you're just sort of working on your own. And it's not reasonable to think you're going to transform health policy or criminal justice reform or anything else that we care about climate change um, with just a couple of people. You know, you actually need a coordinated strategy and you need the infrastructure to support it. I, I really appreciate that. Just one little historical note. We do not give enough attention, whether it's um, politics like this and organizing infrastructure, but it was the basis for building the Roman Empire. They built the roads, they built the aqueducts. In other words, it wasn't just armies fighting. They had to build infrastructure. 
the changes that you made were possible, I, I think, somewhat um, due to you're you're new, and you make an interesting statement. You said that uh, you've seen too many people hold power for too long, and I, I know about that. I quit. Um, we need new energy to come in. Someone once said, there are three ways to leave elected office. I love this. You either die, <laughs> you're voted out, or you step aside. Uh, and the latter is exceedingly rare. Um, so, Skinny, why? Um, it's not just a throwaway, oh, we need new blood. But what does having new leadership, having new people come in, how does that reinvigorate? And why, how does that open up new doors? Well, politics is the way it's structured right now, and certainly in Congress, is a very entrenched system. It's a system of hierarchy, and I'm not totally against hierarchy, but I think that the way it's structured, you sort of have to stick around for 25 years if you want to be a chairman, because nobody's ever leaving. And um, all of the chairs are done through seniority. Um, And so I always believe that, you know, when I left One America, when it was at the height of its success. I would say I I spent almost 12 years as executive founder and executive director, and I decided I needed to step aside because one of the things that progressive politics and power should be about is developing new leadership. And you did that as well at the city council, and I know that was hard, Um, but I do think it's very important because you have to build a bench, you have to allow people to come in, and you have to allow the system to not become so entrenched. I will say that the Republicans have much more, um, you know, turnover of people leaving, not just people getting voted out, but people actually leaving because they have limits, term limits on chairmanships. So you can only be a chairman for a certain amount of time and then you got to step down. You can move to another committee and be a chairman there, but it's quite difficult to do that. And so when people step down as chair, they're sort of like, okay, I think I've done my chair role now. Maybe I'll, I'll leave. And so you do have people stepping back in different ways and new leadership coming forward um, in in better ways, I think, than we in the Democratic Party have been able to do. When somebody new comes in, they do, you know, you do, I'm not dismissing experience at all. I mean, Elijah Cummings, John Lewis, I mean, some of our real stars, Barbara Lee, these are people who have had tremendous experience. So it's not like everybody who has experience needs to go after a certain amount of time, but you do allow for for new people to come in and to bring ideas about how you can do things a little bit differently to bear. And that is really useful. And so I think when I came in, Keith Ellison really welcomed me in. He was the one who said, I want you to run for first vice chair of the Progressive Caucus. I was like, I just got here. I don't <laughs> I don't really know anything. And he said, yes, you do. You're an organizer. You know how to do this. You know, I want you to do this. And, and, um, and of course, we did that uh, with a number of new members as well. Ilhan Omar is our whip for the Progressive Caucus, um, and Rashida is on our executive board. Ayana is very, you know, Ayana and AOC, of course, are very involved. So we've we've been able to incorporate a lot of our new members. But that's a newer that's a newer thing, um, and I think it is one of the things that really we're going to have to change if we want to have the kind of representation that we should have. Otherwise. You're going to be stuck with, you know, representation that looks much more leadership that looks much more like it was from 30 years ago versus um, responding to the current moment. Um, well, 
would it be a sacrilege to uh, borrow the idea from the Republicans and actually have limits on a chair, uh, chairman, chairwomanships for, for the committees? Is that something that going gingerly about it that might happen? Um, I definitely think that it is starting to happen. You saw it happen with the, some of the um, runs for, you know, some of the elections for leadership in the House. You had Hakeem Jeffries um, running uh against Barbara Lee. Technically, Barbara Lee would be more senior. I supported Barbara in that case, actually. Um, but Hakeem's been a great chair. And I think, you know, I think that there's important things that he has brought with his presence. Um, in the past, there was a narrative. I don't know if it was true, but it was a narrative that a lot of Black Caucus members wanted to stick to the seniority system because they had waited so long and there had been so few of them that they really didn't want that to change. I think that has shifted because there are many new younger black members that have come in now. Um, but, you know, there is sort of a band of um, time where you got the Elijah's and the John Lewis's and others, and then there weren't a lot of folks of color that were being elected. And so, it is. I just think it's important to constantly sort of look at um, how we can bring about those reforms. And I think they're starting to happen slow, slow. But I think they're starting to happen. I think I'm glad you pointed that out. I appreciate that. Um, you know, the chapter you wrote on immigration, which I know is, is a major concern, along with uh, Affordable Care Act and, and minimum wage that you write about in your book. But uh, you raise a really good point, a number of good points, obviously. But the majority of people that uh, who are immigrants are actually uh, not illegal; they're legally protected, seeking political asylum, um, and that forty percent of them have children, and then the family's being broken apart. So it's just outrageous. I love your quote from uh, um, I'm blanking out Graham, Billy Graham, uh, opposed to uh, Trump's policies. Um, but you say that. We allow anti-immigrant uh, attitudes to latch onto deep fears most of us have about the other. And I love this. At the core of this fear are two basic concepts. The first is, what about me? And I've heard that so often from relatives. And the second is um, the concept of fear that the idea of the other, the uh, what it means if my culture, my way of life is compromised and theirs isn't. Can you extrapolate and go, I mean, because I think there's a powerful uh, concepts and if we understand how they work, that may open doors to talk to people. Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, immigrants have been a political football for a long time and America has this very mixed um, and checkered history with immigrants. Even going back to our founding, we have an identity as a nation of immigrants. But of course, many people were brought over on slave ships, not, uh, you know, in chains and not out of choice um, to build our bridges and our roads and to be the slaves across the United States, a legacy that we still haven't dealt with. And we're just seeing now a, a slight awakening, but all the resistance that's created around that. Um, and then, of course, immigrants, even the Polish, the Irish, they all faced, many of them faced waves of um, anti-immigrant sentiment in different ways. And so this is a very complicated history that America has with immigrants. We are a nation of immigrants, but we don't always embrace it. And whoever the generation is that came, 
um, is seems to always be afraid of the next generation that's coming or the next wave that's coming. And so I think that when you deal with issues of immigrants and immigration, it is important to recognize that fear. You know, there is this fear that these people are going to come over and they're going to take things that you and I should have and that we worked hard for and therefore we deserve and they don't deserve. But that narrative just has to be completely exploded. And COVID has shown us that. What part of this country and the essential workers that put food on our tables and pick the food supply and everything else, um, you know, what part of our country would survive without the labor of immigrants? That's always been true, by the way. But COVID, I think, showed it in a whole new way. And um, and so I think, you know, tearing apart that fear by getting to know immigrants as societies and communities got more immigrants in. People started to get to know them. Maybe there were some intermarriages. Maybe it's all about recognizing that you and I, even though I was born in India and you were born where? I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, that we are not that different in terms of what we're really seeking. And so I think that is a very important piece. But the other is this basic premise, right, that we're all better off when we're all better off, that you and I are inextricably linked and your liberation is tied up with mine. And there is nothing that will allow you to be truly free until I am truly free. And that is, a is again, something that I think COVID has brought to the forefront. But it's an approach of love and generosity that we haven't seen in this country for many years now. Um, and certainly when we talk about immigrants, the dehumanization, the criminalization of migration and all of the ways in which immigrants have been used to sort of further the worst fears, the most racist, xenophobic fears within us is something very difficult to counter. And yet, Nick, in spite of everything over the last four years and be beyond that, the attitudes towards immigration and immigrants are higher in the United States than they've ever been before. So Americans still believe in immigration. They are afraid and some are afraid and some feel like, uh oh, maybe we can't take any more. But that is where if you had good leadership making the arguments about how immigrants lift us all up. Um, and that this country would not survive without the labor of immigrants. And oh, by the way, the immigration system has never been adapted in decades. And so there is no line for people to get into. Those are some of the facts of the way the system works. But the brain and the heart have to understand what we're really driving towards and that you don't lose anything by me coming to America. Thank you. You are uh, also showing the, the necessity for doing research, and you point out in your book, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they, uh, immigrants who are not uh, citizens, contribute so much money uh, through taxes that they do pay. People forget that, that they actually almost float a good portion of the social security system that people use who they don't have access to use. So, I mean, those kinds of numbers are important. I'm going to ask one last question, and then we'll see if it's some from the public. And this has to do in the last chapter you have, the three supremacies. And um, I, I, I like that sort of typology, white supremacy, corporate supremacy, and individual supremacy, which I think is the basis of so much of what I would say is uh, reactionary libertarianism. Um, 
how can we respond to, to that in the best way so that those supremacies don't corrupt our, our democracy? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is I wrote that um, chapter uh, before COVID ever hit. I mean, the book manuscript was finished back in in the fall. And those three supremacies came out of a town hall that I did with former Secretary of Labor Robert Reich at Town Hall, Seattle, um, on Labor Day, this time last year on Labor Day. And um, Robert asked me, Bob asked me, you know, what do you think the biggest problems are? facing America. And in that moment, um, I didn't I hadn't thought about this before, but I said, you know, I think it's we have to take on these three intertwined supremacies. And I listed them out, corporate supremacy, individual supremacy and white supremacy and anti-blackness. And this is pre George Floyd. This is pre COVID. But it's become clear to me that these are the big barriers. Now, I would you know, there are other ways to look at this. Of course, you've got gender. You've got many other isms that are out there. But the idea that um, corporations should have free speech rights or should have the ability to affect elections or even that there aren't any limits on corporate behavior as it relates to the common good. So if a company creates a bunch of jobs, but many of those jobs are so, so low paid that those people actually depend on the state for state funded health care, as is the case with many of the large corporations. They don't provide benefits and they don't provide high enough wages that people can actually make it. Then the taxpayer is subsidizing the corporation and the corporation is putting the majority of those profits into the highest management levels. And so you get this idea where corporations are controlling so much of our political process, but also now liberties, what people have access to. And then, of course, you come into anti-monopoly um, behavior and all kinds of other things. So that whole idea of what is the role of corporations and why isn't it that anymore, this was the case when charters were first developed, that you had to show what the common good was that you were contributing to as a corporation in order to get your corporate charter. And by the way, you couldn't own as much land as you wanted. There was a limit on what you could own. Um, those regulations have all gone by the wayside and it's hurt us tremendously because there's too much wealth that's controlled by a very small group of people in those largest corporations. Second, um, around individual supremacy, it's again this idea, you know, we're very proud of being individualistic in America. Um, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, you know, anybody can make it, that kind of thing. But the reality is not everybody has shoes and not everybody has a pair of bootstraps that are decent to start with. Um, and so that lack of equity is it it contributes to a lie about what you have achieved as an individual without the help of a government or a society or a community or a family and if we could think about the interrelationships between each of us and our communities and the love that it takes to really build a beautiful society that again is the idea of the common good that we're all better off when we're all better off and then the final one around white supremacy and anti-blackness i just you know, I'm I'm just heartsick at um, the way in which we have allowed racism, anti-blackness, and white supremacy to continue to thrive through Republican and Democratic administrations, and 
to refuse to accept that the United States cannot um, cannot move forward unless we deal with our legacy of slavery. And I was just listening to James Baldwin, an audio book. I've read him, of course, but I was re-listening to it um, again and on a long drive. And, and I just... I think that everyone should read James Baldwin and, you know, really think about the ways in which your privilege has uh, contributed to the oppression of black people in America. And that's true for brown people. It's true for white people. Um, We have to deal with this or we will not be able to move forward. Yeah, I think uh, one of the uh, conditions perhaps extend uh, the argument to or the perception to the, we'll say the white community or the non-black community is that um, a democracy, going back to Lincoln, you know, nation cannot be divided and still stand. And that if we continue uh, not treating everyone as a citizen, even no matter what kind of paper they're waving, uh, we are basically knocking the pillars under ourselves so that we cannot no longer stand. I, I do want to see if there's anyone out there who's provided questions. I can see the list, but I don't know if Greta has been monitoring it and you have any questions. Because I, I, I have some others I can ask, but I, I want to make sure that we do allow the opportunity. And also, if there's something in particular you want to bring up that I haven't touched on yet, too. So... So, Nick, I can speak to you if you'd like to view the questions. You can click the ask a question. They'll all be there. Uh, You both are welcome to choose which ones you'd like to speak to together. So feel free to just sort of look through those. Looks like we have about eight that have come in throughout. Now, let's see where are those questions on. I see the tab on the side. Are they there? When it says ask a question, if you hit that button, it'll Ah, pop up. And at the top, you actually see... Like the first question has four votes. That means that not only did someone in the audience ask the question, but more people wanted to hear the answer too. So that's how they're sort of ranked in order. Oh, I see. Okay, there we go. Technology. Okay. Um, can um, Pramila can see this too, right? We can all see. Okay, so why don't you choose? Because all right, well, we'll take the first one that that is at the top of the list, which is what's the most effective way to have my voice heard by my senators and representatives? Um, it is to talk to us. It's to call. It's to come and visit. Um, it's to write a letter. Um, I will tell you that we I'm so proud of this, but our district, the seventh district of Washington state gets the most calls, letters and emails of any district in the country. And we do we do our very best. I have a phenomenal team that really works hard to try to get a response back to everyone. It is most powerful when you write a personal letter, when you tell me a personal story. Um, I know that there's a lot of great tools and technology that allow you to just copy and paste something. We see that, right? We see, and my staff will say, we got you know 200 emails from X and Y campaign. Um, but when I get a letter that that's from you that tells me what happened when your mother went into a nursing home and she couldn't get the long-term care that she needed and what that meant for you when you had to sell your home. You know, whatever it is, sometimes it's beautiful stories. It's not always stories of, of pain, but whatever it 
is those stories are what resonate with me. They're the stories I tell on the floor. They're the stories I pick to tell in a hearing. Um, I try to pick a few that I can write personal handwritten letters to because nobody does that anymore, and I really like doing that. So maybe you'll get one of those handwritten letters. But that's what's really effective is to put yourself into it and to take a little bit more time to tell me specifically why you care about that issue and what your own personal experience is. The number two question also had a couple people. Uh, what inspired you to raise your voice and continue to raise your voice in the House? Well, I've been an activist and an organizer for, you know, 20 years before coming to Congress. And um, I talk about this in the book. You know, I was supposed to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. That's what if you're an Indian parent and you use your last dollars to send your kid across the ocean and know that they might never come back, you're supposed to make money and do one of those professions that's acceptable. Politician was not one of them. Nonprofit organizer was not one of them. Um, but after kind of of doing work in the private sector, um, I just realized that I had to follow my own heart and I had to follow a path that felt real for me. And I, that initially was working around the world on public health issues and villages and meeting these amazing women, you know, these amazing village women who were organizing to save their forests and, um, you know, uh, get equality for them and to, to run for office as a woman themselves. And it was so inspiring. And I just realized that was that was really what I wanted to do. And then, of course, I came back to the U.S. and 9-11 happened and I ended up starting this organization. I never thought I was going to start an organization. Um, I tell that story in the book. But I realized that my voice and my actions could make a difference and that organizing could make a difference and building a movement could make a difference. And the urgency was so important. And you and I know, Nick, that, you know, strength emerges in the greatest times of crisis. And that's what organizing is about. And that's what I found out of 9-11, these incredible, resilient, courageous people who were fighting so hard that um, there was nothing I could say um, that would, you know, that 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 would match really um, the effort that they were putting in. And so it was it was it was what I had to do to preserve our democracy in the in the months and years after 9-11. Great. Um... Did you want to add anything that we haven't touched on yet? I want to make. You know, I guess the thing I would say, going back to your question about, uh, you know, how do you know when enough is enough? I just I, I guess I just want to say that we are in this really dire time in our country. I mean, I've never been so scared for our country and for our future as I am today. And I've seen a lot of things. I lived through 9-11. I've seen a lot of really horrible things, you know, family separation. I've been in all these different places. But I really do think that we have to think about what's at stake right now. And the road to fascism is littered with moments when people could have stood up and done something, voted, acted, made a difference in some way, defended someone in some way, and they didn't. And that's what led to fascism in many, many cases. 
And we can't let that be the case in the United States. And so really thinking about how we use the next couple of months to raise our voice, to vote, even if you aren't thrilled with the choice that's before you. Um, the reality is we have got to take on Donald Trump. We have to get him out of the White House. And we have to be able to at least have somebody with whom we can begin to make progress towards the ideals that we strive for. And so, you know, we are turning our whole campaign towards um making sure that we elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and also these progressives across the country, and then we continue our fight. But this is really, really important. And if we allow another four years under this president, I really do worry that our country um, will not survive. I've seen the complete disrespect of the Constitution. And so I just want people to understand that your power is your vote and your voice. And if you decide not to use it, it's not just that you're deciding not to use it. You're actually giving it away. You're giving it up and you're allowing other people to essentially claim your voice and your vote. So vote early, um, get engaged. We're, we're, we have a whole training this weekend. It's a 10 hour training for people. We're gonna be working in Pennsylvania, helping to get voters out as well as here in Washington state. Um, and we're training people on how to do that and how to get ready to take back our country. That's great. I your advice on voting is critical. I once had an opportunity to talk to a fifth grade class. I didn't realize there were fifth graders. I speak at high school a lot, and this was a fifth grade class, so I was talking politics with them. But I decided I used the analogy of games. How many people enjoy playing games? Oh, yeah, we like games. I said, and you like winning at games? They said, yes. So, so if you're playing a game with someone and you walk away, who wins? Well, the other person wins, right? So politics is like that. You've got to be in the game to win. If you don't play the game, you're going to lose. <laughs> so um, I I don't know if we're running out of time here or not. Do we have time for one more question, Britta? Or are we... Uh, uh, you guys shut the lights on us? <laughs> cut, the, cut the juice? Okay, I'm going to ask one last question. I've been wanting to write about the concept of citizenship. It's become so narrowly focused on a piece of paper and it's totally ignored the relevance of what this country was all about and what it is still about. Um, I want to revise it. I mean, re revitalize it. I want to be able to use the concept of citizenship to literally create an arch be between basically politics and culture so that this is something that it's more than just on the paper. It's a norm, right? It's an expectation. Um, and I could hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, I think it's so, so important. And it's important in a couple of ways. I mean, we think of citizenship and Eric Liu has done some good work here in Seattle on redefining the concept of citizenship, right? It's not just that piece of paper um, that says, okay, I'm a citizen. It's how you are in your life. It's, it's what you do for your community. It's what you do for your family. Um, it's how you look at your responsibility to make the world a better place. That's what true citizenship is about. Um, 
um, you know, it's it's the ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, that idea. And so I think that's one piece of it. But the other piece of it is um, is really around uh, how we understand our responsibility to protect and preserve the democratic institutions. And in the United States, there are so many people, we're not taught civics the way we should be in school. Um, we don't really, you know, we, we think that the vote is something that is ours to decide whether or not we're going to use it. No, I think it's a responsibility. And there are many things we've done to suppress the vote or to tell voters that they're not important. But one way to take back your power is to never give your vote away. But that has to be taught. People, we need to do that work to invest in helping people to understand where do they get good information from? Um, how do they find out about candidates? How do we make it not intimidating? How do we make this a central part even of naturalization when new citizens come in? That was the work we did at One America. We ran one of the largest voter registration drives in the history of the state. We registered 23,000 new immigrant citizens to vote. Um, that work is so essential to everybody feeling like they are a true citizen. But so are the rights that allow people to feel like they're, they have dignity and they're being treated as human beings. And so those are the policies that we have to pass, living wages, housing for all, college for all, healthcare for all. Those are the things that allow people to engage in a democracy and to feel like it's actually worthwhile. So it's a complicated question, but I really love it because to me, citizenship is the responsibility of the government to the people. It's the responsibility of the people to the government. And it's the responsibility of each of us to each other um, in creating that more perfect union. Indeed. And I think it was in your book that you pointed out, and you know, you read a lot of stuff, so sometimes I'm not quite sure where I found it, but if people believe that the that the folks that they put into office are not hearing them, because they don't necessarily expect you to agree with them, but not hearing their concerns and responding to that, they then lose faith and then they don't vote. And then they ultimately get hurt themselves. And the vote that took place, and I forget now, I think it was in Michigan or Wisconsin, 100,000 people who had voted under Obama's, camp, uh, Obama's election did not vote for Hillary. But they were Democrats. They voted down the ballot. They just didn't vote for the top person. So to me, that meant that they lost faith in the federal government. They lost faith in the president. And that is a heavy responsibility, not just for the president, but for people like yourself or anyone who's elected. Um, and that's why I like the idea that you continually have to organize. Um, and I think you've done a, a marvelous job on, on, on doing that. I would like to see classes of people, classes for new politicians on how to remain as an organizer or be an organizer for your community. So great. And we need to elect more organizers to Congress, um, people who have actually organized in the community. But I, I just think that point you made is 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 really important um, in it was Michigan it, that I quote in the book. But actually, this is true in Wisconsin, too. The numbers are just different. But in Michigan, we lost Michigan. Democrats lost Michigan in 2016 by 10,000 votes. 
10,000 votes. There were 20,000 fewer people that came out to vote in 2016 than did in 2012. And there were 100,000 people that came to the polls but filled out every uh, every single election except for the president of the United States. Left that one blank. So that was the undercount. So when we talk about these swing states and we say, oh, we got to get the moderate voters, we got to get the moderate voters, you know, we got to get those Republicans and the independents. I always remind my Democratic colleagues that, no, actually, you also need to get your base. You need to speak to the base and you need to get young people and folks of color and, uh, you know, and women and immigrants out because that is ultimately, if you're not talking about a congressional district and you're talking about a state, every single vote matters. And um, we have way too many people, young people, folks of color, who just feel like government's not relevant to them anymore, which is why I do so many town halls. I do so many events. I try to bring in young people all the time um, because I just think that part of what we have to do is really change the way way that people have been treated by government in some cases and also change the way people see government in other cases so that they see it as representing them and um, being a part of them versus something completely separate that doesn't have any relationship to me. I want to uh, toss out an idea that um, is based somewhat on fear and, and, and maybe a high probability. There's a lot of discussion about election night, and we may not know who won the presidency for a couple of days, maybe a week. Um, and Trump has repeatedly made noise and very definitively times saying he wants to see what happens. One scenario, I think it's the Bloomberg News came out with a scenario that it's conceivable he could win enough electoral votes election night and then declare himself a winner, and that would create confusion, and of course, raises the whole question of attacking the process, the democratic process of elections. What is the probability, the possibility, of getting Congress, both houses, across the aisles, to pass a resolution uh, or a statement saying that the uh, result of the presidential election will be determined by either the secretary of states of the various states running the elections and that the appropriate thing to do is wait until all of them have finalized and approved the vote. Something like that hopefully would not be seen as partisan. Is that pipe dreaming or is that something like that possible? Trump is not going to let that happen. And the Republican Party has ceded all control to, to Donald Trump. The Republicans have become the party of Donald Trump. And you've seen the things he said, even, you know, uh, even Bill Barr, the attorney general, casting doubt on the idea that you can only vote once. Oh, I'm not sure if it's illegal to vote twice. Can you imagine? Um, or casting doubt on the mail-in system when during the hearing with Bill Barr, which many of you may have seen me on, 
um, questioning him, you know, I pointed out that the MIT study has shown that over the past 20 years, 250 million mail-in ballots have been sent in and the fraud rate is 0.00006%. And so that is just where we are. And I would say to everybody who's concerned about this, and I think we might do a town hall around this very topic actually soon, um, that there are a couple things. One, vote as soon as you get your ballot, wherever you are in the country, vote as soon as you get your ballot and put it in a ballot box or at the elections office if you possibly can. But of course, if you need to mail it, do that, but um, do it as early as possible, because the what we don't want is a bunch of late ballots coming in and um, and then Trump being able to say, well, that's the race is too close to call or he's winning because Republicans have been turned off of mail-in voting and so they go vote to they, they go vote in person but Democrats vote by mail and so our votes take longer to count um, there's all kinds of reasons to vote early secondly I would say that um, we do need to start getting ourselves ready for massive civil disobedience um, nonviolent civil disobedience uh, in the streets if Trump does attempt to steal the election in any number of ways. It isn't just the secretaries of states, um, you know, sort of certifying the elections. There are actually a number of ways that legal scholars uh, on the Judiciary Committee, um, we are looking at this, you know, a number of different ways in which Republican states, state legislatures could flip the results in ways that are not appropriate to the election. Um, And I'm not trying to scare anyone, I'm just being realistic about what we need to be prepared for. And again, it may require um, some real training around what nonviolent civil disobedience looks like, what it looks like to stand up to somebody who tries to steal an election. We haven't had to do that in the United States of America. Many other countries have had to deal with this. We have not. And so there is an effort by a number of um, groups, including Indivisible and Move On and others, to train up millions of people in nonviolent civil disobedience and to prepare ourselves for what might come. But at a minimum, vote as early as you possibly can and get your ballot in to an elections office or to a ballot box, um, if possible, or in the mail as soon as possible. Um, I'm going to ask some questions that were brought in, but one just popped up that's germane to what we just talked about. And that is, why don't states put out more drop boxes? Which, uh, but the problem is, in Republican-run states, I suspect they would not do drop boxes. But I, I don't know. What's your thought about that? There's a great project um, that's being run. By, I think it's called the Center for Technology and Civic Life, um, and they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars for cities across the country to be able to apply for grants for uh, cities and states to be able to apply for grants for tech technical assistance, for hiring election workers, for upgrading their technology systems, for putting in ballot boxes, more ballot boxes, and any state, any city council can apply. Um, There are enormous numbers of cities I know in Wisconsin that have applied, some in Pennsylvania, Florida, Texas. Um, We, of course, are lucky in Washington state in that we have had mail-in voting for a long time, um, and so we're much better off than most states are. But there's a a lot of work that has to be done between now and election day and they're trying to help bridge that gap 
make that information available if you could. I'd like to get it and disseminate it. Um, that's that's a critical piece of the puzzle, as they say. Um, one question that got uh, second highest number of votes was, do Washington state's elected Democrats strategize and support each other, or is it every Democrat for themselves? Interesting question. Um, we work together as a congressional delegation quite often, and certainly during COVID, um, we have a weekly meeting. In addition to Democrats, it's as, as, as an entire delegation, so Republicans and Democrats. We've been meeting with the governor once a week to get updates. So there's been a lot of collegiality during COVID in our delegation here in Washington State. Um, we do, you know, it, it, we do coordinate on a number of different things, but it's also, um, it also depends on the committees that you're on. It depends on the uh, values-based caucuses that you're in. So I'm the uh, co-chair of the Progressive Caucus, but Adam Smith is the is also a member of the Progressive Caucus. The rest of the Democrats in Washington State are members of the New Dems, um, which is a more moderate caucus. And so, it, you know, you tend to interact with different folks, but there's a lot of collegiality for sure and a lot of um, supportiveness on issues that are important to the state. Good, good. Um, let's see here. What do you think is most effective action to get Biden and Harris elected outside of Seattle or Washington state? We're turning our campaign operation towards Pennsylvania. We're sort of adopting Pennsylvania because I do think we need to focus on states across the country that, um, you know, that are going to be really swing states. Um, and we've decided that it's very important for us to focus on young people, folks of color, progressives and turning those folks out. That's where I feel like my my voice in particular can be very valuable. And so I'm also working with Senator Sanders, with Senator Warren, um, with other progressive leaders across the country to um, to really push uh, push that kind of voting. And so if people want to get involved, we'll train you. Um, you can go to PramilaForCongress.com and there's a volunteer button there and you can press on that. There is a 10 hour training this weekend um, that people can sign up for if they want to. But we'll have other trainings that are shorter and that, you know, allow people people to make phone calls, to organize, to take up issues, um, and again, with a focus on Pennsylvania and also here in Washington in this open seat in the 10th Congressional District to replace Denny Heck, we're also going to be focusing some effort there. Great. A um, couple of questions. I'll just tag them on. They're not related. One is, what's your position on having term limits in Congress? Although I don't know if that's constitutionally allowed, but I, I no, I mean, right now it's not it's not there. I wouldn't I wouldn't mind having term limits in Congress as long as we also had term limits on chairmanships and things like that, because I think you got to have both of them together. And I don't think it has to be a super short period of time. I do think that the whole system takes a while. But even if it was 10 years or 15 years, that would be really good because you wouldn't have necessarily people who were there for 30 or 40 years. Um, you'd have you'd have some term 
turnover. So I don't think it's a bad thing. I have tended to leave, you know, I would like to leave on my own terms, not because I die or because I'm voted out. So I, 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 I'm not sure everyone is in that same place, but, you know, power can sometimes be a heady thing. And for me, it's never been about individual power. It's always about what can I accomplish in this role? And if I don't feel like I'm accomplishing things anymore, then, you know, it, I think it'll be time for me to leave. So hopefully it's not going to be anytime soon. Right. Right. Um, one of the questions that was asked was how to get involved with the um, progressive caucus, but I, I'm not sure that's for people outside Congress. It's, it's, it's for congressional people, isn't it? No, actually, so there's the Progressive Caucus, which is inside Congress. Then there's the Progressive Caucus PAC, um, which anyone can contribute to. You can get on our list. You can find out about all the things we do. Um, and you can be a part of helping to elect people like Mondaire Jones and other progressives across the country. Um, and so for that, you can just Google Progressive Caucus PAC. I don't actually remember what the website is. And you can sign up for those, um, you know, for to, to be a part of that entity. And then there's the Progressive Caucus Center, which is a 501c3. And they, of course, take donations, they hire, they have interns. Um, there are different ways, but they also put out really good um, 